Hello, my name is Arham Alam, and this is Swamp Talk, where we swamp the talk and talk the swamp. Today, I have Dr. Hawk with me. Dr. Hawk is actually a uh, pediatric physician, a part of the Wellstar Health System, and he actually recently recovered from uh, uh, from COVID-19. So, uh, Dr. Hawk, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Yes. Okay. So, I'm going to get on to the questions first. So, I had so recently there have been some treatments coming about besides the um, vaccine. So one of these is the convalescent plasma therapy. Could you explain how that works exactly, whether or not it's effective, and how is it different from a vaccine? So when somebody gets infected to something, uh, like a, um, an infection or organism, which may be a bacteria or virus, okay. their immune system produces some antibodies yes. which act against the virus. Mm-hmm. And these antibodies kind of remain within the system for a period of time. That period of time is very indefinite. It depends on the particular infection. And it also depends on the person who has the infection. I see. That's why you usually don't get two infections with the same organism back to back, temporarily you're immune to it. So the idea of the convalescent serum is to take plasma or the, uh, from a recently infected person, try to isolate that antibody and give it to somebody who has an actual infection or is suspected to have an actual infection so this borrowed antibody can fight the infection uh, because the person who is newly infected their system does not have the antibody yet to produce a neutralization of the infection i see okay so, how effective is it compared to a vaccine? So, a vaccine will usually provide protection long term. That long term depends on the individual vaccine. So, for example, a flu vaccine provides protection. Uh, for about six months or so, mm. where something like a chickenpox vaccine, two doses of the chickenpox vaccine will provide lifelong okay. immunity. Whereas a um, convalescent um, um, convalescent plasma treatment will provide very short-term immunity. Oh, okay. So why would we want to prefer this short-term immunity and not wait for a vaccine? Because you're actually dealing with sick people. Remember, this convalescent vaccine that is given now is not to provide immunity in healthy people. Oh, I see. It is to neutralize the infection in people who are already infected. Or in some cases, let's say you have a highly, highly susceptible person in a family or at home where everybody else has COVID and if this patient has COVID, they will probably have a very serious 
infection from it mm-hmm. and probably be hospitalized or you know might die that is the person who would probably get it but most of the convalescent serum is given to people who are actually infected i see okay so Thank you so much for telling me about that, because I, I have been hearing about this treatment recently. I wasn't actually too sure about that, uh, what it was exactly, but this definitely gives a lot of information. Now, I want to look at statistics and how it's helped during this crisis. So how has statistics and data collection proven to be useful for tracking COVID-19? For tracking? Now, if you're talking about... Um track and trace for that i mean let's say you have a person who has been diagnosed with covid 19 how many people could potentially have he have or she have given this to Mm -hmm. that track and trace system is very bad in the united states i see now and for example for example in georgia there are I would say thousands of cases every day. There are like a few hundred people who are qualified to do this track and tracing. I see. So their, their system is overwhelmed. Okay, I understand. That that makes sense. So do you believe, so besides, so I, I would, it, it, would it be correct for me to assume that this is definitely an area where statistics, statistics could improve? is if you have so many cases mm-hmm. per day so many for example in the United States currently for the past three days there has been more than 50,000 cases per day and each person if you were to track and trace their contacts there could be dozens of con- contacts that they have had mm-hmm. since they have the infection uh, it's really not going to work it only works if you have a pretty limited number of cases so that, you know, oh, um, a, a group of people or tracers could probably end up uh, tracing everybody that this person could potentially have infected. I see. Okay. I understand. So, I did want to talk about, so could you describe to me your experience with having the coronavirus like so like uh did you fear for your life or like how how did you feel throughout the entire experience i was kind of fortunate that i never got any very serious I effect from it in the sense that i did not um i did not get short of breath okay. that is kind of the deciding factor between a serious and a mild to moderate form and so the differentiation comes the moment that you start having difficulty breathing that I would see. make it a severe form requiring emergency room hospitalization intensive care depending on the circumstance my symptoms were mild to mo- I would say moderate but not severe okay I recovered in about two weeks and I was back to work in about three weeks. Okay. So, but you are still at risk, though, of um, g- uh, getting 
COVID-19 again, correct? Um, the current data is once you have had COVID, um, you have a strong antibody response that the current study shows is protective for at least 90 days after you after your infection. I see. And uh, that's the minimum. The maximum, the studies have not been done to show how long this immunity will last. But okay. you have a certain amount of immunity for the three months after your infection. Okay. So, all right, so that, uh, okay. Now, what I want to ask about, I'd like to shift gears for a moment, if you don't mind, and I would like to talk about the government's response to the coronavirus. Clearly, um, a lot of people would describe it as a very uh, uncoordinated, um, but from your perspective, what has you, uh, how has not only the national government or the federal government, but also the state government and possibly even local to a certain extent, how have they reacted to the pandemic? And how would you evaluate their reaction? There's a couple of things here. One is, you know, um, in this kind of situation, a branch of the federal government, that is the CDC or Central Heart Disease Control, takes the lead in formulating policy and usually the um, uh, executive branch of the federal government signs off on it and the state government sign off on it also. Mm -hmm. That has happened in the past, recent past, I would say, with the Ebola uh, issue. There were just a few cases, but it was very well tackled. Um, that happened with the swine flu situation in 2000. I believe it was 2009, mm -hmm. and that was very well tackled. With this one, there was, it was a more serious issue in that COVID-19 turned out to be deadly in a lot of situations, Yes, and it spread very fast yes. within our community, uh, within our cities in the United States, and thirdly, uh, this was not, this was, this is a novel virus, which is a newly mutated virus. And um, the, whom it affects more, how, what's the best way to treat it, these data were not available at all. And they were kind of um, in the initial stages, like in March or April. Physicians were kind of flying blind into it. Mm, okay, I see. But the other thing was, this has such an impact on the economy that very stringent measures, which could have contained the virus better, I wouldn't have said. I, I'm not saying that it would have stopped the virus from spreading, but would have contained the virus better. Mm -hmm. Would have led to a larger economic toll on the country and I think that that's where the problem was where the governments and the governors and the federal government um, were not aggressive in controlling because yes you will have fewer cases 
I see. Okay. So moving forward, what can we expect from coronavirus? Like, uh, what 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 should we expect these next couple of months? Very very difficult to predict. Mm. Okay, uh, but in general, what you are seeing in certain parts of Europe is a reemergence of the virus as winter sets in and restrictions were kind of relaxed. I see. I expect a similar thing to happen in the United States. Winter comes early in the northern part, so I think there may be a uh, resurgence of the virus in the northern parts of the country and then spread as we move more into the winter, more into the southern parts, of course. That is just a guess based on how uh, respiratory viruses, other respiratory viruses in the United States behave along a particular season. Um, there is, coronavirus is a respiratory virus, unless it's very different from every other respiratory virus. I see. Now, I, I did want to actually talk a little bit more about the vaccine. I believe there's been a recent poll where only a a small proportion of Americans, at least according to that poll, will if will take the uh, COVID vaccine if it becomes available. Could you explain why there's such skepticism with the vaccine? There's a certain amount of skepticism with just about every vaccine that you can think of. Yes. Okay. So... And uh, it's not that people don't like vaccines. People, for example, I deal with children. People want to protect their children. Yes. And sometimes in their mind, they think that I may be doing actual harm to my child by injected, injecting them with polio vaccine, whereas there's no cases of polio in the United States in the last 20, 30 years. Why am I even doing this? I see. Okay. So there's a public health issue that's very deep, that's, that's looking at the entire population that's sometimes very difficult for an individual person or a family to understand. I see. So there's a lot of skepticism from that one issue. The second issue, there is no vaccine that is 100% safe. Mm-hmm. There is no medication that you take, prescription or over-the-counter, that is 100% safe. And there are going to be some side effects, and very rarely there can be very serious side effects. Mm -hmm. And when you are giving um, a vaccine to a population of hundreds of millions, there are going to be possibly side effects. That's number one thing. And secondly, this is a new vaccine. I see. People are always skeptical about new vaccines. The flu vaccine, which has been around for many, many years, we offer it to all children in our office, six months and up in age. 
and about 50% choose not to get the vaccine. Oh, I see. Okay. So how do you think, like, how, how do you believe we can possibly ease concerns among parents and among uh, Americans in general about the vaccine? Firstly, it has to come from the CDC. Mm-hmm. And this vaccine is effective and safe. It has to come from physicians who actually deal with patients and treat patients that this vaccine is effective and safe. It has to come from our political leaders to say this vaccine is effective and safe. But that can only come after effective safety and um, efficacy trials have done and the results published in a very transparent way. Also, you have to understand that even the stage three trials uh, that are being done with these vaccines cover about maybe 20, 30,000 people or so who are treated. What if a vaccine has a very serious side effect that happens in one one in a million people treated? You might not see that in the first 30,000 people. Mm, I see. Okay. Well, Dr. Hawk, thank you so much uh, for your time. I know you're exceptionally busy. Um, with the pandemic, but again, I really appreciate the for your time and helping me inform others about the uh, coronavirus. Oh, you're most welcome. Glad to be of any assistance. Okay, thank you. And to All right. those of you listening, uh, please make sure to tune in. There are going to be more of these interviews coming soon. So thank you very much and have a good evening.